Well, today's message is the fourth now in our series from Mark's Gospel. And if you've been tracking with us from the beginning, then I'm sure that you've noticed that each sermon text has been steeped in Jewish culture and Jewish prophetic expectation. There haven't been any passages yet that, uh, to help us pray better or to be a more loving spouse or be a more faithful church member. That hasn't been Mark's focus yet. It's all being Jesus-centric and rooted in Old Testament scripture. This is how Mark begins his gospel. Uh, God made certain promises to the nation of Israel. And for centuries, Israel has lived in the hope that God would soon fulfill those promises. And now the time has come. The promises of God are now being fulfilled. They're being fulfilled in Jesus God's anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ. But there's a problem. The mold into which the people of Israel are trying to squish Jesus, it's too small and it's too old. Now you might think, all right, too small? I think I get that. Jesus is God and no one believes it. But too old, what does that mean? How so? If you have your bulletins, you can look at the big picture today. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, but he explodes Jewish expectations, thus leading to his murder on the cross. Because, hear this, friends, Jesus is like new wine that ferments and explodes the old wineskin. Jesus is like a new piece of unshrunk cloth that tears the old garment if it were sewn upon it. Jesus isn't an attachment. Jesus isn't an addition or an appendage to the status quo. He can't be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures, not even Judaism, not even the law of Moses, not even the tabernacle. Yes, certainly, there is a lot of continuity with all that's come before. There is fulfillment. That's a very important word. There is fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But there is discontinuity as well. There is something radically new in the dawning of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Again, look at your big picture. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. He fulfills it. But he explodes Jewish expectations, thus leading to his murder on the cross. And then Mark provides us with two examples, both of which focus on Jesus' deity, his godhood. Example number one, Jesus claims to be the divine bridegroom of Old Testament scripture. Example number two, Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, a prerogative of God alone. Now, I've always been something of a film buff. Uh, I'm certainly no expert, but the films and the directors that I know best are American. I I love American cinema, particularly from about 1940 through the 1970s. However, my knowledge of international film is pretty paltry by comparison. Now, New City, please bear with me. Um, I I know I used this illustration just in our Ruth series a few months ago, but I'm going to say it again. But about 15 years ago, I discovered a Japanese director Uh, whose films really resonate with me, Uh, the writer-director Yasujiro Ozu. Uh, He's one of the greats, in my opinion, and after being blown away by the first film of his that I saw called Tokyo Story, I began then to systematically make my way through, to work my way through his entire film catalog, because that's the kind of nerdy guy that I am. And, and, And as I did so, I was reminded of just how important cultural context is for understanding the intent of an author. Because there were all sorts of cultural references and cues that I was missing in these Japanese movies. So I would re-watch entire sequences with the DVD's audio commentary playing over top. Like, I'm a real nerd. (laughs) But because there were nuances, the performances and, and character motivations that were escaping me. I didn't understand it. The significance of what I was seeing on the screen had to be explained to me 
because I wasn't able to fuse my Canadian cultural horizon with the cultural horizon of post-war Japan. I wasn't understanding it. Why is the father treating his unmarried daughter like that? Why, what are the familial obligations of children to parents in 1950s Japan? Why is that person dressed that way? Is that significant? Likewise, if we're going to understand the gospel of Mark as God intends, then we're going to need to fuse our Canadian cultural horizon with first century Israel. We need to bring them together. So before we look at our first point this morning, let me just share some Jewish background that can help contextualize things. Number one, probably the most important thing, Jesus is a Jew. That, that has to be understood. And because he's ministering in Israel to other Jews, we might think that everybody is on the same page, right? Religiously speaking, they're all on the same page. That's not the case. First century Israel is a mixed bag. There are different parties within Judaism, different sects, just as we have different denominations within Protestantism today. So the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Herodians, the disciples of John the Baptist... They're all there in that first century scene. But the group with whom Jesus interacts the most and from whom he receives the greatest challenge to his authority is a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most influential religious movement within Israel. They were the, most, they were the group with the popular support. They had the support of the people. Uh, the Sanhedrin was kind of made up of the aristocracy of the Sadducees, but the Pharisees had the popular support. And ironically, Jesus himself would have stood closer to the foundational beliefs of the Pharisees than any other sect within Judaism. But Jesus and the Pharisees locked horns often over the issue of man-made religious traditions. That is, religious traditions not found in the Bible, but which the Pharisees forced upon the people as being legally binding as part of just their man-made tradition, but they made it legally binding. So let's begin with chapter 2, verse 18 of Mark's gospel. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And, and that's not an innocent question. That, that's a very antagonistic question. In the Bible, when it was practiced with the right motives, fasting was a physical expression of humility before God. Just like kneeling to pray can reflect humility. Fasting was a sign of deep repentance and brokenness before the Lord. But like anything else, it could be corrupted into an occasion for pompous self-righteousness. Just read through the Sermon on the Mount. Right? There were people in Jesus' time who would wear glum and pained expressions on their faces while they were fasting. They, they would walk around unkempt, unwashed. They would sprinkle ash on their head. All to inform the people that they were fasting. Kind of saying, look at me. So... What was once a sign of humiliation, repentance, and brokenness before the Lord becomes a sign of self-righteous display. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, and everybody in Israel knew it. That was, everyone understood that. Because along with prayer and almsgiving and fasting was then one of the three religious duties that showed you really meant religious business. But Monday and Thursday fasts are nowhere commanded in the scripture. They're voluntary acts. According to the law covenant of Moses, the whole year round, fasting was only required of an Israelite on one day. Do you know what day that was? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's the only day, according to the law of Moses, every Israelite had to fast. Now, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the disciples, you know, they're actually doing it multiple times a week, but it's not necessarily described for us in Scripture. Those are voluntary acts. But some people thought that if Jesus and his disciples were serious about holiness and devotion to God, then they would voluntarily take upon themselves just as stringent a fasting regimen as any other party in Judaism. So we have this accusatory question. 
How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not, Jesus? And Jesus' response to this accusatory question is very illuminating. It tells us a lot about who Jesus is, which again is the theme Mark's been going at hammer and tongs since chapter 1, verse 1. Who is Jesus? So, chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Jesus is saying, this isn't an appropriate time for my disciples to fast. How can they fast when the bridegroom is in their midst? This is a time for celebration. This is a time for feasting. Once the bridegroom is taken away, then my disciples will fast. So here we have a picture of a first century wedding feast. Now in Canadian culture, there's the wedding ceremony, followed by the reception, where a meal is provided for the guests. And the whole thing lasts 12 hours tops, if you're lucky. <laughs> That's what I say. 12 hours tops. Not so in the Middle East. Uh, weddings would last seven days for a virgin and three days for a remarrying widow. And there was always an abundance of food and wine and song and dance. Friends and guests had no responsibilities but to enjoy all the festivities. So when our Lord mentions the guests of the bridegroom in verse 19, he's picturing the gathered wedding party, all of them waiting impatiently to eat. So, but you, can you imagine, though, going to a wedding reception, attending a wedding reception, only to be told by the MC, all right, folks, uh, instead of enjoying a nice meal, we're all going to fast. Oh, <laughs> there'd be a riot, right? That is out of the question. A wedding isn't the proper time for fasting. And Jesus here describes his mission as a wedding. He's the bridegroom and his disciples are the guests of the bridegroom. It was my fault I, I didn't send the correct email out. What you see on the, up here, Jesus. It should be the divine bridegroom and Lord of the Sabbath. And then another thing in the bulletins, it says our bridegroom. That's not the context, actually. It's not our bridegroom. It's the divine bridegroom. Um, it, this, we're actually Christians in this text. The disciples are guests, not the bride. So just, I just totally messed that part up. But just bear with me through the sermon. Here Jesus describes his mission as a wedding. He's the bridegroom and his disciples are the guests of the bridegroom. And the guests need to celebrate. They need to live it up, right? Because Jesus, the bridegroom, is in their midst. Let's try a little thought experiment. Imagine for a moment, this was me, John. All right? What would you think about me and my ego and my sanity, frankly, if I stood up here and said, oh, you lucky people, you're in my presence. Have a party. Live it up. Celebrate. I, John, I'm in your midst. But Jesus can say that with a straight face. Who is this man? How can he say such a thing? Once again, Jesus is thrusting his person and his mission onto center stage. He's saying, you must pay attention to what I say because of who I am. The proper response to the bridegroom's presence is celebration. Celebration. Why is that? Because in the Old Testament... Israel's husband, Israel's bridegroom, Israel's lover, is God himself. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is making the highest authority claim possible by calling himself the bridegroom. Because this bridegroom, as the prophet Isaiah writes, is no less a person than Emmanuel. God 
with us. Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 5, Isaiah 62, 5, Hosea 2, 19. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. So, most definitely, this is not a time for the disciples to be fasting. In Jesus' divine presence, the proper response can only be joy and celebration. But then we come to verse 20, which sounds completely incongruous with what's come before. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Why in the world would the divine bridegroom be removed from the presence of his guests? Why would he be taken from them? This is a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is here, he's predicting his death three years into the future. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Which means Jesus consciously ministered in the shadow of the cross for three years. When he went to bed at night, he knew the cross was coming. When he woke up each morning, he knew the cross was one day closer. We're getting a hint of that here, but it's not clear yet. It's not clear to the first-time readers of Mark's gospel. They wouldn't make that connection yet, nor is it clear to the disciples. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, after his exaltation to glory, and after the promises of his return at the end of the age, the biblical pieces start fitting together in the disciples' mind. They start connecting the dots, the biblical dots, Yes, they experienced terrible sorrow during Jesus' three days in the tomb. But then Jesus' glorious resurrection forever shatters their despair. And yes, the disciples will experience cycles of suffering. There are days of fasting to come as they face the assaults of the evil one and await Jesus' return. But not now. Right Right now, sorrow and fasting are completely out of place The divine bridegroom is in their midst. And then our Lord gives two short parables. These are the first parables of Mark's gospel. Two short parables which serve to drive home his utter uniqueness and his utter authority. As well as introduce the need for covenantal change. Don't forget that part. It's so important. The need for covenantal change. And it's that this point in the sermon that we start to swim in deep theological waters, all right? Pay close attention. Pray for understanding. Because for many believers, what Jesus teaches here is obscured in interpretive fog. But with these first parables of Mark's gospel, Jesus prepares his disciples for the massive covenantal changes that are dawning that he, Jesus, brings with him as the anointed one, as the king of Israel. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If they do, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do... The wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Brothers and sisters, the new things that Jesus brings cannot just be superimposed on the old. The old patterns of how Israel relates to God must give way to new. With the dawning of the kingdom, the traditional structures of life, all those forms of piety as we see under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they must change. They must change. And as we read through Mark's gospel, we see how that change has worked out. As we read through the book of Acts, we see how it's worked out even more. As we see in Paul's letters, how it's worked out even more. 
But in Mark's gospel, we, we see, for instance, Jesus argues in this chapter that we're going to be looking at today that Sabbath laws are made for the benefit of human beings and not vice versa. In chapter 7, kosher food laws, he says, are superfluous. It's only purity of the heart that matters. In chapter 12, love of neighbor is greater than sacrifice. The temple will be destroyed, and a new one, not made with hands, will be raised in its place in chapter 14. That is all, all of it, radical, radical stuff from an Old Testament perspective. But it's because in his death, Jesus is going to inaugurate a new covenant. And it would be utterly inappropriate to graft the new onto the old as if the old were the supporting structure. In precisely the same way, it would be inappropriate to repair a large tear in an old garment with a new unshrunk cloth. Or use old brittle wineskins to contain new still fermenting wine when the gases will just explode the old, the, the old skin. The old doesn't support the new. The old, hear this, the old points to the new, the old prepares for the new, and then gives way to it. Beloved, these first parables in Mark's gospel are essential to understand. Jesus didn't come to simply patch up an old system, you know, to throw some invigorating new life into it. Jesus isn't merely a reformer of the old ways. He utterly transforms it. What do we read in Mark 14, 23 at the Last Supper? What does Jesus say? He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant. Right? The new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. And Jesus says this because in biblical times, Blood sealed or inaugurated a covenant. Jesus' sacrificial death is a covenant-making event. It marks a new act of redemption. And it begins a new relationship between God and his people. It creates a new community of worshipers. Many worshipers, Jesus says here. Many sinners saved by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But we see it here first in seed form in Mark chapter 2. This is where it starts. In accordance with God's sovereign plan and in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus, the divine bridegroom, is taken away. He's taken to Calvary's hill. He's taken to the cross to pour out his blood for many in a covenant-making event. And there must be... there must be a new covenant. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And this leads to Mark's second example of how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy while exploding Jewish expectation. Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, a prerogative of God alone. And at this point, I thought it might be helpful to ask a series of questions sort of related to how the Bible storyline fits together, how the plot line of the Bible adheres, coheres. Because looking at the question of Sabbath, before we look at this question, we need to trace out some strands of continuity, discontinuity, getting back, I think, to what Jesus taught in the parable of the cloth and the wine. And, and just to be clear, I'm not seriously suggesting uh, any of these proposals, uh, but I'm not being flippant either. I'm not being flippant. Uh, I'm asking questions like this can help serve a teaching end, I believe, as they challenge our religious assumptions. With God's help, they can help us think through our biblical theology. So, here we go. In the Old Testament books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God commands his covenant people, Israel, to worship him in a very specific fashion. People aren't just doing their own thing as they approach Yahweh in worship, right? 
Worship of God in the Mosaic Covenant was highly regulated worship. Page after page after page of instruction. And often, if they got something wrong, they died. Either God killed them directly, think of Aaron's sons offering up strange fire in the tabernacle, or God commanded that they be stoned to death by the covenant community. So here's the big question under which all my whole list of little questions comes, all right? The covenant people of Israel worshipped God for 1,500 years in this highly regulated fashion, and their corporate worship revolved around the tabernacle and then later Solomon's temple. It revolved around it. So why don't Christians all over the world worship God in the same way as God commanded the Israelites? Right? We need biblical answers to that question. Why has no Christian philanthropist or some mega church in Texas taken the bother to fund an archaeological expedition to the Middle East to find the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was an essential part of Israel's worship. It was the focus, really, wasn't it? God's glorious, revelatory presence hovered over its lid, the atonement cover. It was God's earthly throne. Wouldn't we like Yahweh's earthly throne to be situated here in Toronto? Wouldn't that be great? And if we found the ark, what would stop us from moving out of this facility at 527 Mount Pleasant Road and setting up shop at the Rosedale Golf Club and constructing a tabernacle on the 18th green according to the pattern laid out for us in Scripture? The tent of meeting was the meeting place between God and human beings. Don't we want to meet with God too? Of course we do. So why not pool our resources and buy colored silk and seal skins and ram skins for the construction of the Rosedale Tabernacle? And when it's finished, we'll place the Ark of the Covenant in the back room of the Tent of Meeting in the Holy of Holies, And God's special revelatory presence will dwell there in that locale of holy geography. God's throne room on earth. Just think of it. But if we do all that, then we're going to need a high priest to mediate between God and his people. I nominate myself. And once a year, I'll enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies the back room of the tabernacle, and I'll sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that cleanses from our ceremonial pollution and our outward defilement of our sin so that Yahweh can continue to dwell in our presence here in Toronto. And I'll keep venturing into the most holy place to sprinkle animal blood year after year after year after year. And when I die, my son Marty, he'll take over the job year after year after year. And then his son after him, year after year after year after year. Why don't we keep a Saturday Sabbath? Why don't we stone people for working on Saturday or even on Sunday if you think that's a new sort of Sabbath? Why don't Christians keep kosher food laws? Why don't we observe Old Testament purity laws regarding skin diseases and bodily discharges and on and on and on and on? Now, obviously, I am not seriously suggesting that we adopt any of these measures. I'm trying to make a point. Old Covenant Israel and Christians today, we worship the same God, right? Why is our worship so different? Christian, how many times have you heard someone say, you evangelicals, you're so inconsistent. You're so hypocritical. In the Old Testament, God commanded people not to wear clothing of two different fabrics. He commanded people to slaughter animals as a propitiatory sacrifice for sin. But in the same book, same-sex relationships are forbidden. Where's the consistency? Where's God's consistency? Why do you Christians drop the the fashion commands and the sacrifice of animal commands, but not the homosexual prohibitions? It's because you're bigots. Beloved, in this day and age, we need to have a ready answer 
for that sort of charge. It needs to be on the tip of our tongues. We need to know our theology on this one for sure. How would you respond to that kind of accusation? Because that's an attack on the authority of Scripture, isn't it? And the consistent holiness of God. Why don't Christians worship God like the Israelites did in the wilderness? The answer, of course, is because Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. They pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus' life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the inauguration of Jesus already here, not yet come, new creational reign. That is why we don't do those things any longer. All those Old Testament commands and prohibitions pointed to something beyond themselves. They pointed to Jesus. Their proper end was in Jesus, and Jesus has fulfilled their ultimate purpose. The old is gone. The new has come. Hebrews 8, 7 to 8, a text to be reckoned with. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, no place would have been sought for another. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Read the book of Hebrews. Though through our Lord's death, through his resurrection, citizens of God's kingdom are inheritors now of a better covenant. An eternal covenant. A covenant, brothers and sisters, with better promises. A better sacrifice. A better high priest. A better mediator. A better temple. Jesus is better. That's the message of the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. All those laws and institutions and accoutrements of old covenant worship, the altar, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, those were all shadows. All shadows. And 2,000 years ago, God commanded his people to move out of the shadows and into the substance to which they always pointed. Which is why it's immaterial if we ever find the Ark of the Covenant. Immaterial. I mean, it would be a make for a fascinating archaeological discovery, but it's just a useless, empty old box. The substance to which it always pointed has come. In the same way, the second Jesus died on the cross, the temple priests could have rented out the Holy of Holies for a pig pen. The substance to which it always pointed has come. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17? Don't think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, Jesus doesn't conceive of his life and his ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing to fruition that to which it points. The law and the prophets of Old Testament scripture, they find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus, because Jesus has fulfilled their ultimate purpose. So that means when someone makes the accusation, hey, why don't you Christians 
practice all the commands of the Old Testament. You're being so inconsistent, you're just cherry-picking the rules that suit you, that accommodate your bigotry and your prejudice and your intolerance. We respond, now we know how to respond, but we respond, no, Christians, in fact, do keep those laws. Every single one of them. Not a jot or a tittle has fallen to the ground. Christians keep all the Old Testament laws as we adhere to and practice all that Jesus says because Jesus fulfills the older revelation. But this is a teaching that the religious leaders of Jesus' day don't understand. I mean, the disciples themselves don't understand this yet, but certainly... The teachers do not. Rather than Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, rather than these laws having their eternal validity and continuity only in him, the religious leaders saw Jesus as flouting the law of Moses and trampling it beneath his feet because they don't recognize Jesus as being the divine bridegroom. They don't recognize him as being Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, They see Jesus' exercise of authority as unbiblical and blasphemous. Blasphemous. And so Mark now gives us two Sabbath controversies back to back. And at their conclusion, Jesus' death is plotted. That's how fast things go off the rails in Jesus' public ministry. By chapter 3, verse 6, the religious leaders are plotting his death. Verse 24 of chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And because we have two Sabbath controversies back to back, it might be good actually to look at the original Sabbath law. Go to Exodus 20, uh, verse 8. This is on page 76 if you're using the, uh, the blue church Bibles at the back. Exodus 20, 8 to 11. Here's the Sabbath law. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Two observances above all defined Jews and set them apart from all the other nations. Circumcision and Sabbath. Those two. And Sabbath rest extended from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. But notice what Jesus says in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which means God instituted the Sabbath to bless humanity and to enhance its well-being, to provide for its physical refreshment. It was supposed to be a time of joy, not not a burdensome yoke placed on human existence. But that's precisely what the legalistically scrupulous Pharisees had turned the Sabbath into. What the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of allowing, sinfully allowing his disciples to do is the work of reaping, harvesting on the Sabbath day, which is a bona fide Sabbath day violation. That would be work. But that's just preposterous, right? I mean, no one here in this text is harvesting wheat. Uh, and, And Jesus, I suppose he could have responded to this accusation by saying, no. What my disciples are actually doing is the very thing described in Deuteronomy 23-25. Moses says, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to the standing grain. So he could have said, yes, I mean, if my disciples had sickles, that would be reaping. Uh, That would be stealing, too, for that matter. Uh, But they're just enjoying a light snack. This isn't a Sabbath day violation, according to the law of Moses. But Jesus doesn't respond that way. What he does instead is respond in such a way as no other human being who has ever lived could respond in this situation. He turns the whole thing 
into a Christological debate, a who am I kind of debate. Jesus says his disciples are allowed to do these things and act this way on the Sabbath because of who he is. And he does that by appealing to the Old Testament scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 21, and a precedent set by Israel's greatest king, King David. Now, for the sake of time, I won't have you turn there. Besides, we pretty much get the whole story in the next two verses anyway. But look at verse 25. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God, that is the tabernacle, the holy place, and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest, the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. So, here's a question now for the, the theologians in our midst. What is the logic of Jesus' argument here? Why does our Lord appeal to this event in Israel's history? Because on the surface, I mean, those two situations are nothing alike. Right? We're told in 1 Samuel, we're not told in 1 Samuel, that the incident with David even took place on the Sabbath. Also, David and his men were starving. And Jesus' disciples are just a bit peckish, right? This is a convenient snack as they're walking along. Moreover, David's violation is a violation of the priestly regulations for temple worship. David and his men ate the consecrated bread in the most holy place, the showbread. Only the priest could have that. So why does Jesus cite this event in their defense? What do you think? He does so because King David is the man at the center of this controversy. The logic of Jesus' argument implies a covert claim to a personal authority as great as that of King David, Israel's greatest king, and the precursor of the Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus is saying, look, fellows, if King David was able to get away with such a violation, with no condemnation for his action, that I can certainly do the same because I'm greater than King David. David's kingly office merely prefigured my own absolute messianic authority over the entire universe. And then he smashes that point home in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God instituted the Sabbath, and now Jesus presumes preeminence over it. Once again, Jesus puts himself squarely in the place of God. That's not just in John's gospel. When we see John's gospel, oftentimes it's just being a great quarry for the divinity text of Jesus. Mark does it a lot, too, in these opening chapters. We've seen this in his authoritative teaching, his miracles, his exorcisms, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, by his taking on divine titles like bridegroom, and his forgiving people's sins. And now... Jesus is shown to be the Lord God in relation to that most sacred of divine institutions, the Sabbath. The Christological stakes could not be raised higher. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the divine bridegroom of Old Testament Scripture. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, a prerogative of God alone. Starting in verse 3. It all comes to a head. By chapter 3, Jesus has a bad reputation amongst the religious leadership. He's a blasphemer, 2.7. He's a friend of the worst kind of moral scum, 2.16. He's an apostate from religious custom, 2.18. And he's a Sabbath breaker, 2.24. In fact, in a few verses from now, He'll be accused by the religious leaders of being possessed by Satan. Even his own family, his own mother, will think he's out of his mind in chapter 3. Out of his mind. What a testimony to the blindness of sin. 
Now Mark records another Sabbath controversy. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And I wonder if there might be any here today uh, who also have been watching Jesus closely to see if he conforms to their sinful, pathetic, finite human standards. You're hearing this text being preached and you're upset. C.S. Lewis wrote these wise words. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches a judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench, the judgment bench, and God is in the dock. And that, of course, is the height of moral rebellion. It is satanic anarchy. Human beings don't stand in judgment of God or his beloved son. The only fitting response to Jesus is repentance and belief and worship. He is God. He is the divine bridegroom. He is Lord of the Sabbath. But here we have certain people in the synagogue watching Jesus closely. And they aren't neutral, impartial observers. They're motivated to accuse Jesus. They want to bring Jesus down. They want to destroy Jesus. Because, but Jesus isn't scared of them. Look at verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked, him, asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. The first part of our Lord's question, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, is referring to the man with the shriveled hand and Jesus' ability to heal him. It's a good thing to heal this man. Jesus thinks it's not only permissible to heal on the Sabbath, it's right. It's the right thing to do. But... In the face of the man's needs, the religious authorities are silent, and this silence angers Jesus. He's greatly disturbed by their callous, conniving hearts. The second part of Jesus' question, which is lawful, to to save life or kill, refers to Jesus himself and the murderous attitudes in the hearts of the religious authorities. The man with the bad hand, he's just a mere pawn to them. He's not a suffering human being. They just want Jesus to heal him on the Sabbath so that they now have an excuse to kill him. Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So what began as unspoken misgivings and grumblings in the heart on the part of the religious authorities back in chapter 2, verse 7, this man forgives people's sins, you know, now has become a formulated plan to eliminate Jesus as a threat to religious and political interests. Jesus and his followers are seen as a new and subversive movement that must be stopped. It's amazing how bad things have gotten in such a short time, isn't it? I mean, Mark told us in his prologue that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord. He's more powerful than John the Baptist. He's the one who both gives and receives the Spirit of God. He is the chosen one who has come to do battle with the powers of evil. He has angels at his side. But now, at the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus has a reputation as a blasphemer. He's a friend of the worst kind of moral scum. (coughs) He's an apostate from religious custom. 
And he's an habitual Sabbath breaker. And so his death is plotted, even though there is nothing in his actions deserving death. Friend, be certain that you don't make the same mistake. You must not make Jesus in your own image. right? To, to, to domesticate him like a dog. So at the end of the day, you hold the leash. You must submit to the authority of God's revelation. Use the Bible as your certain guide to show you who Jesus really is. Who he really is. Lest you rebelliously cram the holy, glorious infinitude of the divine bridegroom and Lord of the Sabbath into cultural or religious compartments which make you feel, you feel like he then now can be a guru worthy of your allegiance. It doesn't work that way. Place yourself under the authority of Holy Scripture. Because if your conception of Jesus, either his person or his authority, over every aspect of your life, doesn't conform to what I've faithfully preached in this sermon series so far, then you don't really believe in the real Jesus. The Jesus you perhaps say you love and respect and admire is a false Christ. The real Jesus invites you to come to him, but only on his terms. And today I preach to us all from God's word, the real Jesus, the divine bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath, who in accordance with God's sovereign plan and in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy was taken away, taken away to the cross to pour out his blood for many in a covenant-making event, a, a new covenant. It must be so. No one pours new wine into new old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. New covenant, brothers and sisters, rejoice in that fact. Amen.